Hey y'all, this is Chuck, uh, the Duke of Discourse of uh, PFR fame, or our pathetic attempt at fame. This is a new thing. <laughs> uh, it's called Chuck Tales. It's uh, something I've been wanting to do for a while, and um, it's I basically wanted to do a fantasy equivalent of my man Dan Carlin's hardcore history. So this is going to be a stab at that and a clumsy stab at that, but we're gonna we're gonna give it a shot. Uh, today's book is called Dragon's Bottom Twilight, and it's uh, the reason I started with that book is it's really the first fantasy book I read. Um, most people's first fantasy book was Lord of the Rings. That was a little heavy for me, um, as it's a fucking tome. That book probably, the original red book of Lord of the Rings probably weighs 20 pounds. So <laughs> this is a smaller one. It's, it was under the TSR label. TSR, for people who don't know, was owned once by, is, is was once, has now been bought out by Wizards of the Coast, which... Um, get puts out a lot of quality fantasy, but they have not. T, I think TSR it was the golden golden days of fantasy. Um, um, it's it's definitely a more uh, action adventure than it is uh, epic fantasy. Although there are epic fantasy elements, especially in this book, um, and these two writers are two of the best in the business. And they started out; they were a little rough to begin with. That's one of the things I, I I'm going to stress throughout this is that. This book was published in 1984. It was likely on the shelf of one Will Byers and the other kids on the Stranger Things uh, cast. They were definitely uh, big Dungeons and Dragons marks. So this would have been in the second season. It was in 1984. This book probably definitely would have been in the possession of probably Will Byers. I think he was the most the one most into it. Maybe maybe uh, Dustin too. Dustin seemed like he might he might have been into it. Um. It is uh, and it's set in a fantasy world named Kryn, called Kryn. Kryn is a uh, you know just a it's a fantasy trope planet. Let's put it that way. You have elves, dwarves, all the things that you're going to have from Lord of the Rings. They are not as epic as they are in Lord of the Rings because it's just not as epic of a world. But that doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's not as good. I think it's definitely as good. Um, in a lot of ways, in in my opinion, it's better. Um, because some of the stuff in Lord of the Rings seems so out of touch. Like the elves are so powerful and so angelic. They're above everything. The elves in this are, they're not pointy-eared humans, but they're definitely more, they don't live, they're, they're not immortal. They live, you know, hundreds of years as opposed to being immortal. So dwarves live for a couple hundred years. Uh, that's on the outside. They usually 150 years old is considered old for a dwarf and humans are just regular. And then other races we'll get into, as we go. So, um, this book starts with, uh, we'll go something I like to call Dramatish Pisane, which is, uh, you know, the people that are going to be pertinent in the book. Um, there's a list of them, <laughs> oddly enough, at the beginning of the book. Tennis has, uh, Half Elven. Uh, I'll just read the description. Leader of the Companions, a skilled fighter who detests fighting. He is tormented by love for two women, the Tempestuous Swordswoman, Kittyara, and the Enchanting Elf Maiden, Lorana. Stern Brightblade, Knight of Salomnia, once severe in the days before the Cataclysm. That's a big thing we'll get into. The Knights have fallen into disgrace. Sturm's goal, more important to him than life himself, is to restore the balance of the knighthood, or the honor of the knighthood. Goldmoon, Chieftain's Daughter. She is going to be a notorious, we'll discuss this in, in the show, she is a notorious Mighty Whitey, but 
we're I think they're going to address that uh, later on. Um, Mighty Whitey means that it's a white person living amongst people of color who somehow becomes revered. She is so that, but um, I think they're going to change that if they make a uh, an adaptation. I'm really sure they're going to, but she's a good character anyway. Chieftain's daughter, bearer of the Blue Crystal Staff, her love for a tribal outcast. River Wind leads them both on a de- dangerous quest in search of the truth. River Wind, grandson of Wanderer, given the Blue Crystal Staff in a city where death flew on black wings. That's a really cool part of this. He barely escaped with his life. That was only the beginning. Raceland, he is an extremely important character. Caraman's twin brother, a magic user. Though his health is shattered, Raceland possesses great powers beyond his young age. But dark mysteries are concealed behind his strange eyes. Some things, some of these things, even I'm reading the description, like, wow, this is really fucking nerdy. But you guys hang on, because it's it's actually good stuff. Caraman, Raceland's twin brother, warrior, a genial giant of a man. Caraman is the exact opposite of his twin. I've always thought of Caraman as a, a kind of... Goofy and very pleasant version of Conan. I mean, I think that his name has a lot of the has all the same letters of it. I think there's some ana, some anagrams there uh, with that. Flint Fireforge. He's a dwarf. He's an old dwarf. Uh, Tennis' oldest friend, the ancient dwarf, regards these youngsters as his children. "Quote unquote." Tesselhoff Burfoot Kinder We're going to get into Kinder It's one of my favorite Constructs in this world Kinder The nuisance race of Kryn Are immune to fear Consequently trouble Just seems to follow them home Then the next page We have uh, The lands of Abyssinia Which is like A part of Ancelon This one continent There are many continents On, on Kryn All these events Happen in a continent, continent Called Ancelon the other continent is called Talitus. It is not touched upon at all until later on. It wasn't touched for years. Nobody did anything there. I was trying to write one of those in that continent myself. We might get into that sometime. Probably not. And this book, again, Dragon's Vought and Twilight, Dragonless Chronicles, Volume 1, by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Um, they were just two, from what I can gather, they were just two regular uh, Dragonland, uh, Dra- Dungeons and Dragons nerds who wanted to write something epic in this world. So they basically just did a D- Dragonlance, uh, Dungeons and Dragons adventure and then made a, a, an adventure out of it and then novelized it. That's basically what happened. So 1984 is when it was, like I said, when it was released. Um, we'll go to the first part of this, uh, The Old Man. And that's just what happens is ch- ch- uh, chap this prologue. Uh, Tika Whalen, who is a pro- trope in herself, we all know about the uh, busty barmaids and all fantasy. She is that up and down. She's a very good character though, and she becomes a very um, sympathetic and awesome character later on. She's just kind of in this place in this town called Solace. Solace is this tree town. There are all the tree, all the these giant. They're called uh, Valen Woods. There are huge trees, and people have built their homes and all their businesses, with the exception of the smithy, of course, which that would be dumb, um, in the tops of trees to protect themselves. It is a wonder in Ancelon. Everybody, uh, everybody's welcome there. It's a, I don't know. They don't really say if it's a big city. I don't think it's that terribly large. But um, it's a crossroads, of course, You know, for people going to different places in Abyssinia, like the plains, and then the Qualinesti is near there. That's one of the elven homelands. So she's just, uh, she's a barmaid. She's getting this, uh, just cleaning the place. And this old man comes walking in. And, uh, let's see. Him and, him and, uh, her and this guy named Odic, who runs the place, are having a discussion about its exposition. They're talking about 
in this thing, in this uh, world, the gods have fled. Like, you know, they used to have gods that answered their prayers and stuff like that. It's basically like magic, but it's not. Um, and they fled the world, and this thing called the Cataclysm happened where all these meteors fell and, and crushed, you know, killed lots, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Um, really was a great blow. Then uh, sickness swept the world, and uh, lots of terrible things happened. So this point in Krim and Anson is not, it's not a, it's not a very great place. I mean, it's it's got a lot of uh, crumbling cities. It's got a lot of, you know, crazy stuff going on. Um People distrust each other, different races, the elves and uh, dwarves and humans do not trust each other. Kinder are a nuisance to everybody. So um, so they're just having a discussion about that. And this old man comes in and he starts moving chairs around and um, he starts to move a table. And Tika says, quote, what are you doing? That table's always been there. And I'm going to try to do like Dan Carlin and, and keep the quotes and unquotes. A long, narrow table stood in the center of the common room. The old man dragged across the floor and shut up against the trunk of the huge Valenwood, ran across from the fire pit and stepped back to admire his work. There, he grunted, supposed to be closer to the fire pit. No, bring him over two more chairs. Need six around here. Um, so she does. And um, he says, quote, now the old man... Uh, Put them next to the fire pit in the shadowy corner. And Tika says, "'Tisn't shadowy. It's sitting in full sunlight." He said, "But ah, but it will be shadowy tonight, won't it, when the fire's lit? She says, I suppose so. So nobody knows who this old guy is. Um, I, for the one thing I forgot to mention is that there are steps leading up to the to the end of the last home where they are, and um, they didn't hear his footsteps. That's odd, you know. So then uh, that's kind of uh, leading up. He says, quote, a part, uh, there's a party going to happen here, and he says it will be a party such as the world of Korea has not seen since before the cataclysm. Be ready, Tika Whale, and be ready. So that's kind of an ominous, you know, beginning. We have book one. This is one of my favorite passages. Uh, the name of the chapter is "Old Friends Meet in a Rude Deprunction." I'm not going to do this for every chapter. This is I'm just trying to find my way with this. Um, not having three other people to talk to is kind of <laughs> jarring. Um, one of my favorite passages in all of fantasy is this quote: "Flint fire forge con- collapsed on a moss-colored b- boulder. His old dwarven bones had supported him long enough, and were, were unwilling to continue without complaint." Unquote. So he's just coming back from a trip. Um, they don't really go into where Flint has been. Flint is what's known as a hill dwarf, where you have two. Di- they're of the same race, but it's two. It's pretty much a social. Uh, separation uh, The mountain dwarves Live in this great Think When you're thinking Dwarves in this Just And when you're trying To envision what they're like Anything you're going to get From Lord of the Rings Is accurate Like that's what They're going to look like so We've all seen the movies You know Stout Strong people Good fighters Long beards You know All that stuff He's an, he's 149 years old Or 148 And he's old um, Still Still tough He's been a metal smith in solace all his life. Um, but like I was saying, he's a hill dwarf, which are they live outside the mountains. Um, all the mountain kingdoms. Uh, one of the biggest one being Thorbarden, which is has a is a mountain, like is a hollowed out mountain basically, and that's where the mountain dwarves live. There's a lot of bitter enmity between these two groups. Like it's uh, only as as bitter as a family can be because they are family. So um, so anyway, he's coming back from a. From a trip And Starts talking to himself um, Quote I should never have left And I'll be damned if I'm ever leaving again So He Keeps talking to himself And he says uh, 
after 148 years, I ought to have learned. And another voice pipes up and says, quote, you'll never learn dwarf. Not if you live to be 248. So Flint looks up and he sees uh, somebody coming up the path. And his description of it is this is one of the best descriptions I've ever heard in any fantasy book. Um, the ma- quote, the man's walk was marked by an easy grace and elvish grace, Flint would have said. Yet the man's body had the thickness and tight muscles of a human, while the facial hair was definitely human kind. All the dwarf could see of the man's face beneath a green hood was tan skin and a brownish red beard. A longbow was slung over one shoulder and a sword hung at his left side. He was dressed in soft leather, carefully told in the intricate designs the elves loved. But no elf in the world of Kryn could grow a beard, no elf but Tannis, you know, question mark. Flint, he's his friend Tannis, Tannis Elf, F. Elvin. They're the oldest friends in this because Tannis is still very young for an elf. Um, there's another book that I will get into called uh, Kindred Spirits. It's one of my favorite fantasy books. Also, of course, set in the world of Kryn, and it's their first meeting. Tannis was a troubled young man. His mother, actually, he is the product of a rape. Uh, a human warrior caught uh, his mother outside of Qualonesti, and they raped her. And then she had the baby, and then she just kind of chose to die. Elves are like that other immortal race that they, they can just basically choose not to live anymore. So she faded away and died. So his his he's a great hero for this because he, he is the everyman. Even though he's of a, a race that none of us are and all that stuff, he lives much longer. He's beset by all these doubts and stuff that any one of us would have. And his are compounded by the fact that he was raised – in Qualonesti, one of the elf kingdoms, and he was not welcome there. Like, he was raised by the basically the king of the elves in that place called the Speaker of the Sons, and he tried to give him a really good upbringing, and he loved him and all that stuff, but there's this always this, as, as understandable, it would be understandable, how would you look at someone that is the product of a rape of your dead sister? You know, you would try to love him, but you're going to see the guy's face, you know, that if, especially if he's of a different, you know, race entirely, looking back at you. So his, and he had, you know, adoptive brothers and an adopted um, sister and cousin, you know, it was just a very, it was a really tough, uh, tough upbringing for him. So um, they meet and, you know, talking about what they've been doing. And then uh, uh, talking about how this, the high seekers in Haven are now uh, in solace and, you know, seeking the new gods. That's the seekers. Um, can you pause this for us? Um, Tannis picks up Flint and Flint. I love Flint's character. He's one of my favorites because he is crotchety as crotchety gets. He's a, he is a fucking irritable old man. Um, and he says, quote, well, you've learned no manners in five years. Still no respect for my age or my station. Hoist me around like a sack of potatoes. And he peered down the road. I hope no one who knows us saw us. He's <laughs> so he, it's that, you know, there it's that uh, easy familiar familiarity. Um, so they're just, you know, it's more exposition. There's a lot of expedition in this book, as there would be, you know, introducing a new world and stuff. They're just trying to introduce us to all these things going on. Like I said, the Seekers. And from what I can gather, they the companions that I've mentioned, and now we'll get into the other ones here in a minute, made a pact to come back to Solace at this point in time, five years later, to see what was going on in the world, look for uh, the evidence of the old gods, look for who have fled, look for how how you know their respective places were going. Uh, basically, how the world's doing, you know, because they were all, you know, the world. Like I said, it's a pretty broken place at this point. So, um, 
it's not really, you know, they <laughs> really got any answers. So they're, they're coming back and they're meeting back again. So, um, let's see. I'm, if you have to help, you have to forgive me. There'll be a little bit of silence because I'm scanning through trying to find passes I want to read to. Okay. Here's one. Here's another character introduction that I love. Um, the only answer, uh, the only answer for long moments, that's because uh, Tana says, who goes there? They hear somebody in the, in the woods or whatever. In the, in the, and the only answer for long moments was an eerie sound that made the hair rise on the half-elf's neck. It was a hollow whirring sound that started out low, then grew higher and higher and eventually attained a high-pitched screaming whine. Soaring with it came a voice. Elven wanderer, turn from your course and leave the dwarf behind. We are the spirits of those poor souls flint for- fireforge left on the barroom floor. Did we die in combat? No, we died of shame, cursed by the ghost of the grape for not being able to outdrink a hill dwarf. <laughs> so, Flint's, it turns out that this is uh, a character named Tassahoff Burfoot, which we have. Now, he's one of the Kinder race. Um, one of my most interesting, the interesting things I've heard about uh, the early days of Dungeons and Dragons is that a lot of people despised halflings. Halflings are what would be known as hobbits. The fact that they're paunchy, the fact that they're soft, the fact that they have hairy feet, and nobody like that. So when they created Dragonlance, uh, I can't remember which one of them. I think it might have been Margaret Weiss who said, well, she created this whole race um, called the Kinder. And it might not have been Margaret Weiss, but it doesn't matter. Um, Kinder are little people like halflings, only they're slender. They have pointed ears. And they're basically a race of thieves. But they don't steal for gain. They steal because they're so insatiably curious. We'll get into their creation later on, which is an interesting story. Um, and Tasselhoff is the comic relief, and he is hilarious sometimes. He is infuriating because he, he's not scared of anything. Kinders are immune to fear. They, they, do not, they do, are not afraid of anything. As a matter of fact, they'll run towards danger because it's interesting. So... Um, one of my favorite parts of any book is there's a guy called uh, a death knight called Lord Soth. And he, he's standing there all menacing and stuff. And you can imagine this in a cinematic way. And then Tasselhoff walks up to him and sticks his hand out and says, hi, Tasselhoff perfect. Nice to meet you. <laughs> and the Lord Soth is looking at him with glowing red eyes and people are like pulling him out of his way. You know, this is a, a, a literally a creature that can kill with a word. And he, and he thinks because he's, Interesting. He wants to go up and meet him, and he's so excited. He, everybody else is terrified, and he's just not. He's not scared. So, okay. It, here's a description. Quote: There's a faint rustle in the underbrush. Then a small finger, a small figure stood on the path. It was a kinder, one of a race of people considered by many on Kren to be as much a nuisance as mosquitoes. Small boned, the kinder rarely grew over four feet tall. This particular kinder was about Flint's height, but his slight build and perpetually childlike face made him seem smaller. He wore bright blue leggings. Uh, the one thing I love about this race is their love of colors, and and they wear things that are jarring, like they would wear here in our planet. I think they would wear leisure suits with polka dots on them. He wore bright blue, blue leggings that stood out in sharp contrast to his furred vest and plain homespun tunic. His brown eyes glinted with mischief and fun. His smile seemed to reach the tips of his pointed ears. He dipped his head in a mock bow, allowing a long tassel of brown hair, his pride and joy, to flip forward over his nose. Then he straightened up laughing. The metallic gleam Tannis's quick eyes had spotted came from the buckle of one of the numerous packs strapped around his shoulders and waist. All kinder pretty much carry pouches they put shit in. 
things that they've found, quote unquote. You know, I love their explanations when they get caught with something because they seem to legitimately believe them when they give give you the explanation. Like you would have dropped that. Good thing I found it here. Give it back. You know, so that we'll get into a lot of that. Everybody loves Tasselhoff. I, as a matter of fact, I mean, I've only heard one person in one YouTube video ever say, you know, is one of the only people I've ever heard say he didn't like Kinder. Like they're annoying. I'm like, they're, you know, endlessly hilarious and fascinating. And, you know, and they bring up something that can really be dark sometimes. So the thing that he was, uh, I'll continue with this. Quote, Taz grinned up then leaning on his Hoopak staff. It was a staff that had created the eerie noise. Tanis should have recognized it at once. Having seen the Kinder scare off men, many would-be attackers by whirling his staff in the air, producing that screaming whine. A Kinder invention, the Hoopak's bottom end was copper-clad and sharply pointed. The top end was forked and held a leather sling. The staff itself was made of a single piece of supple willow wood. Although scorned by every other race on Kren, the Hoopak was more than a useful tool or weapon to a Kinder. It was a symbol. New roads demand a Hoopak was a popular saying among Kinderkind. It was always followed immediately by another of their sayings, no road is ever old. So they're extremely, I find them very endearing instead of a lot of people. And some of the things that happened to him later to Tasselhoff and other kinder later on are very hard to take because they're so childlike and there there is a kinder city called Kindermore and it's haphazard and you know they there are no kinder architects so they just basically cobble shit together and then they lose interest halfway through so you have a bunch of half finished houses sitting around everywhere and they're you know they're always taking each other's shit but they don't care because I, one of the best things is there's a a saying that a uh an heirloom in a kinder house is something that's there for more than two days. So uh, he comes up and ru- the he comes up and tries to hug Flint, and Flint, hug, who really loves Tafelhoff, embraces him back. And uh, then he goes to Tannis, and they're all uh, <laughs> introducing each other. And uh, he tries to hug Tannis, and Tannis says, "Quote: No thanks. I want to keep my money pouch." With a sudden look of alarm, felt Flint felt under his tunic. "You rascal!" he roared and leaped the Kinder, who was doubled over laughing. Two went down in the dust. So this this is a good meeting of three old friends. Um, probably my favorite three characters in the whole thing. Um, they're the most warm, other than what happens later on in, in subsequent series. Not necessarily these three books. Um, they're extremely, you know, they're relatable. They're kind to each other. There's a real sense of family. You know, Flint took in Tannis because Tannis really had no family. And Tasselhoff embraced them both because no kinder, you know, kinder extended families don't really exist. I mean, they they even vaguely know who their parents are, you know, because they're not abandoned, but they, you know, they're they're wanderers all over this whole place. And this is a planet without, you know, cell phones or, or even regular phones. So there's no keeping in touch. Um, but all of a sudden, here comes our... Moment of drama. Uh, quote, Tannis chuckling started to pull Flint off the kinder. Then he stopped and turned an alarm. Two lady heard the silvery jingle of harness and bridle and the whinny of a horse. The half-elf put his hand on the hilt of his sword, but he had already lost any advantage he might have gained through alertness. And uh, this is a great description. Uh, swearing under his breath, Tannis could do nothing but stand there and stare at the figure emerging from the shadows. It was seated on a small, furry-legged pony that walked with its head down as if it were ashamed of its rider. That's pretty fucking good. Gray mottled skin sagged into folds about the rider's face. Two pig-pink 
pink eye stared out at them from beneath a military looking helmet. Its fat, flabby body leaked out between flashes, pieces of flashy, pretentious armor. I don't know how armor could be pretentious. I think that was might have been a slip there for an early writer. <laughs> you could say ostentatious, but how can armor be pretentious? Um, a peculiar odor hit Tannis, and he wrinkled his nose in disgust. Hobgoblin, his brain registered. He loosened his sword and kicked a flint. But that moment, the dwarf gave a tremendous sneeze and sat up on the kinder. Horse, Flint, said Flint, sneezing again. This is a hilarious thing. Flint is not actually allergic to horses. He just doesn't want to ride them, so he has made up an illness in his head so he doesn't have to ride horses with everybody else. Dwarves are not good riders at all to begin with, really, because being so small, they will ride ponies on occasion. But anyway, um, this is uh, – it, it's not really clear. This is, His name's Toad is the name of the uh, hobgoblin. He's got, got a couple goblins with him, and they're going to uh, try to accost – Tannis, Flint, and Tasselhoff, and that is a bad idea. They might be pretty much regular folks, but they really know how to fight. So uh, a scuffle ensues. They're finished with this patch. And uh, one of my favorite things about it is uh, at one point, um, let's see, this uh, this is good. Quote, Taz, without ever losing his innocent childlike expression on his face, reached into his fleecy vest, whipped out a dagger, and threw it all in one motion. The goblin clutched his chest and fell with a groan. There was a sound of flapping feet as the remaining goblin fled. The battle was over. Pretty simple battle. You know, goblins, that's one thing I want to get into is that there are tropes in this. Goblins are the trope villain. They're supplanted later on, not too much later from now, actually, but they're a good non-specific Monster race that is really used uh, in the in the planet of Kran. As a matter of fact, though, there are no orcs. Orcs. I don't know if they did that because orcs were trademarked by by Tolkien, but there are no orcs on Kran, which um, that was a pretty you know standard requisite villain for Dungeons and Dragons. Regular Dungeons and Dragons. This is Dungeons and Dragons, but this is a whole new world to itself. So, um, <laughs> Tannis. Offers to get the uh, dagger for for Tana, for Tasselhoff, and um, Tasselhoff tells him that the stink never comes off, and then, and then he says, quote, besides that dagger was Flint's. <laughs> he had taken the dagger from him when he hugged him and used it. So <laughs> I always thought that was pretty funny. Uh, I didn't, I thought I was going to do this chapter by chapter, but I don't think there's a, there's a way not to. Um, it's just... I'm just the producer, so you do whatever you need to do. Well, I'm just saying, you know, that's it's it's going to take a long time if we just go chapter by chapter. But I'm not trying to just give a summary. I'm trying to describe what's going on, you know, but also give the general gist of things, but also dis- discussion about it. Okay. Anyway, after that, um, it's chapter two. Return to the inn. A shock. The oath is broken. So, uh, Tasselhoff, Tannis, and Flint are now entering Solace and coming to the end of the last home that we discussed just a little bit earlier. It was their meeting spot. Um, I love the the black and white picture of the end of the last home right there. It's really, I mean, you can tell it's, you know, Larry Elmore, let me say this, okay. The guy who did the cover art, this particular edition is by a different artist. It's a great artist. I'm not aware of who it is, you know, because I, you know, I'm stuck in the in the original versions of these. But um, the cover art from the original versions and all the cover art and all the art, or at least most of the art in the interior is done by a guy named Larry Elmore. Larry Elmore, who's still living, is the painter of the iconic uh, covers of all the Dungeons and Dragons 
rule sets, most notably the one that we've all seen on uh, Stranger Things, the red set. The red box is like the the most iconic Dungeons. I've got a t-shirt with it on. I'm looking at the rule book right here sitting beside me. It's a, basically a picture of, it could be even be Caraman. It, it actually might, you know, be a a progenitor of Caraman, the guy we're going to discuss here in a second, fighting a dragon who he has no chance to beat. But um, it's a beautiful painting. Absolutely beautiful. Very odd-looking dragon. only has one horn. I never noticed that before. It only has... It's a unicorn dragon for some reason. Dragons usually have two. That's weird. But it's a very... It's an awesome painting. It's a red dragon, of course. Um, it's got a big, huge pile of treasure. Look at all that damn treasure. It's crazy. But <laughs> uh, the, the you can always know it's his because you can see his name marked down at the bottom. Elmore. So that's the way he... Sign stuff When I wanted to be an artist I used to sign my name Just like that And now that I can't Draw anymore You know I think it's kind of silly Going back and watching Looking things that I've drawn And tried to sign my name Like Larry Elmore Because I was never Going to be Larry Elmore Let's just be frank But anyway um, I love this description Of Solace This will You know Maybe paint the picture For you Quote Solace had long been A, cro- a crossroads for travelers They came northeast From Haven The seeker capital That's where the seeker gods We talked about earlier They came from the Elven kingdom Of Qualanesti to the south Sometimes they came From the east Across the barren lands Of Abyssinia Throughout the civilized world The end of the last home Was known as a traveler's le- refuge And center for news It was to the end of the last To the end of the three friends Turned their steps so, you know, that's a good, that's a nice image. Those three friends going to a place that they love and haven't been for, been to in a long time. Um, this is a good description of the end of last home. I'm going to keep doing what Dan Carlin does and just quoting and unquoting all these parts of these books. Quote, the huge convoluted tr- trunk rose through the surrounding trees. Against the shadow of the valley and wood, the colored panes of the end stained glass windows glittered brightly and sounds of life drifted down from the windows. Lanterns hanging from the tree limbs lit the winding stairway. That is a beautiful image. I don't know about anybody else, but I think that's an absolutely beautiful thing to even think about. Though the autumn night was setting chill among the among the valid woods of Solace, the travelers felt the companionship and memories warm the soul and wash away the aches and sorrows of the road. Okay. One of these things that I want to do before, other than making a brief description, I'm not trying to do this. This is not that kind of thing. I wanted to get into the writers and how great they were to begin with, but also how much they grew. I've never seen a, a parabolic curve of how good a writer got over, over not even just over a career, but over the course of basically one book. There are flashes of true genius in this. And that, that very paragraph is one of them. You know, that conjures an image that no, a lot of other writers could not conjure. And in very few words. So there are things in it that we will get into that are silly and when you really examine examine them, they don't hold up, but we're not doing that. Like, you know, to, to dissect these is to destroy the fun. If you're going to sit down and dissect something as Dungeons and Dragons, you'll never have an, you'll never run out of stuff to dissect. So, you know, but anyway, um, the place is full because people, um, you know, felt better in crowds, uh, saw us and even saw us at this point was, it had become a, a haven around dangerous places. Um, you know, you had rumors of wars. Um, you know, it's just a very bad time in the con of Ancelon. So, um, this is a good description of the seekers. These are the people seeking the new gods, quote unquote, we seek the new gods. Five years ago, quote, five years ago, the men calling themselves seekers had been a close, loose knit organization of clerics practicing their new religion in the towns of Haven, Solace, and Gateway. These clerics had been 
misguided Tannis believed, but at least they had been honest and sincere. In the intervening years, however, the clerics gained more and more status as their religion flourished. Soon they became concerned not so much with glory in the afterlife as with power on Crean. Hmm, who's that sound like? Um, they took over governing of the towns. I think that we could call uh, Kenneth Copeland and his disgusting wife seekers. Uh, they took over the governing of the towns with the people's blessing. Um, they're seeker gods, you know, they're walking around, um, they're just throwing their weight around, you know, like people in power are going to do. Um, and you know, they're happy to be here, but it's, it's very definitely a, a different feel. Um, Here's another great passage. Quote, reaching the top of the stairs, Taz flung the door open wide. A wave of light, noise, heat, and the familiar smell of odic spiced potatoes hit them full in the face. I've always wondered what the what it actually would smell like. Garlic? I don't know. But it seemed to me the most delicious thing ever whenever they did describe it as that. You know, because being a potato eater myself, you know, of a race of potato eaters, it just sounds delicious. Um, let's see. Here's a, you're getting ready to introduce Caraman and Raceland, so let me get into this. Quote, Tasselhoff, his quick candor eyes sweeping the crowd, gave a yell and pointed across the room. Something else hadn't changed either. The firelight gleaming on a brightly polished winged dragon helm. Um, so that's Caraman. And Caraman is a human. Of course, he's, uh, he's gigantic. Like, he's probably, I don't always imagine him being, like, weighing, almost 300 pounds and he's six feet tall and it's all muscle. Um, he's enormously strong. Um, I, I don't know if I necessarily know, considered him a skilled fighter. You know, when you think about other people in this world, another guy I'm going to get into her in a second, Stern bright blade, who is, you know, a, a really good fighter. He's trained with his sword and all this stuff. Caraman basically gets, I think gets by on brute brute force alone. Um, he is decent with his sword, but he doesn't have to be because he's so much stronger than everybody else. Um, let's see. I'm looking for the the description of Caraman here. Um, there really is none. They just it's basically played off about how he appears to everybody else. He picks everybody up with a bear hug because he's extremely. He's also extremely emotional. He's a very kind person. Um, but that's not. He's not the. He's not the uh, sizzle reel here. I mean, he's he's kind of like. He wasn't a, a an unimportant character, but he doesn't definitely at first wasn't a major character. I don't think. Well, let me take that back. He was a major character, but he was like another strong fighter that the party needed because you need two basically. So um, he's huge. He's muscular. He's six feet tall. Black hair. He's uh, you know, and then but all of a sudden, but then uh, the introduction of his brother is where it really starts to get interesting. Um. Raceland is Karama's twin brother and twins, but yes, they are. Would they be definitely be, be fraternal twins because they're not identical? Um, that may look alike in the face, but Raceland was always small and uh, weak and he had ill health. Um, you know, it's one of those situations where, you know, the younger brother, he, he's extremely intelligent, but he's also nobody likes him because I would, I would hazard that he is more like a, more powerful and less likable version of Professor Snape from from Harry Potter. That, that'd be a good description. But that's until this thing happened to him that turned him into this. Quote, the face that turned toward him, Tannis, from the shadows was a face out of a nightmare. 
changed wasn't the word. The mage's white skin had turned a golden color. It glistened in the firelight with a faintly metallic quality, looking like a gruesome mask. The flesh had melted from the face, leaving the cheekbones outlined in dreadful shadows. The lips were pulled tight into a straight, dark straight line. But it was the man's eyes that arrested Tannis and held him pinned in their terrible gaze. For the eyes were no longer the eyes of any living human Tannis had ever seen. The black peoples were now the shape of hourglasses. The pale blue irises Tannis remembered now glittered gold. Um, I don't know if they made him like that after they started writing the book or if it was a consequence of some spell or something that was cast on him in a, in a Dungeons and Dragons adventure that broke his health and, you know, stuff like that. I don't know. If it is the latter, they were able to genius work it into this and create something out of it. Um, Raceland is extremely unlikable. Um, he's sardonic, short-tempered, um, just not a likable guy, but extremely intelligent, powerful. He has very quick hands, um, you know, especially to be so young. He's, I don't think he's even, he's not even close to being 30 in this. He's in his early 20s. So um, one of the best reactions is Flint sees him and says, quote, what evils at work here? Are you cursed? So um Basically, what happened is, and every wizard in the in Kryn, if you want to go ahead with your magical studies, you have to go to these places called the Towers of High Sorcery. There's only two left because all the others were destroyed when people turned against magic. This is hundreds of years ago, before the Cataclysm, and uh, the test to become a magic user is it is an extremely mean pass fail. Like, and it, and it will and it will take something from you that that you consent that you really, you know, a thing that's central to yourself because it's basically asking you, we're going to take this from you in exchange for the magic. Are you willing to give it up? People who aren't die. So, um, Raceland, I think they gave him they with his eyes. He's constantly seeing things dying. He sees the the decay of everything. He sees, you know people aging in front of his eyes and turning into bones and stuff like that. This is what he sees all the time. So the only person he doesn't see it with, with is elves because elves are so long lived that they don't, that it doesn't affect his, his vision. Um, he's, you know, they make him extremely unlikable at first. I didn't even like him. Um, well, he's 20 in this uh, because he was elected to take the test. And uh, Tannis says, quote, the test Tannis repeated stunned, but you were too young. What? 20. The test has only given him made who studied years and years. So they did advance him because they kn- knew how powerful he was. And that's actually, a, I think it's a controversial thing even amongst the the heads of the Orders of High Sorcery. Like there was a lot of uh, discussion and disagreement about giving him the test. And then there's a lot of recrimination between a lot, all of them because, you know, the ones who wanted him to take the test, you know, are, are now... Basically, it's a responsibility thing. This is your responsibility, and you fucked up. That's basically what the whole thing is. So, um, they don't really go into the to the uh, specifics of the test until later on, and it's actually a pretty pretty cool passage. So, anyway, um, here's a actually here's a description of what he sees. Quote: Even as I look at you now, Tannis, the mage whispered, "I see you dying slowly by inches, and so I see every living thing." So, um, but then this is a description of he of of what kind of person Raceland is. Quote, the mage leaned forward, his eyes glowing feverishly, but I have power now, he whispered, parsley and told me the day would come when my strength would shape the world. I have power, and he gestured the staff of Magus. I, you know, some of these artifacts and stuff they have, I'm sure they made up, um, 
the history as they went. Staff Magius is this. Uh, we'll get into him a little bit. He was this uh, wizard who was a friend of Huma, who's this a legendary guy who drove the dragons from Kryn. You know, that's another thing that I should have mentioned before. Dragons in this world, oddly enough, in a Dungeons and Dragons world, are considered a myth. There are no more dragons. So, um, I can't remember exactly the uh, circumstances behind their disappearing. It's probably it was an agreement amongst the gods that you know it was just it was too much. Uh, they were too powerful and the world was too unstable. So all the, there are good dragons and evil. So they all agreed to basically fly away and to not, and a lot of them went to sleep. They just, you know, hibernation for hundreds of years because they, I think dragons in this, they're not immortal, but they are damn near immortal. So, um, and then the, uh, requisite, uh, voluptuous barmaid, Tika walks up. Um, and it's a nice description of her. But finally, um, here she hands Tannis a thing, a letter though. Quote, by the way, Tannis, she reached in her pocket and drew forth a cylindrical object. This arrived for you today under strange circumstances. And Tannis frowned and reached for the object. It was a small scroll case made of black, highly polished wood. He slowly removed a thin piece of parchment and rolled it. His heart thudded painfully at the sight of the bold black handwriting. It's from Kitty Ara. He said, Finally, knowing his voice sounded strained and unnatural, she's not coming. There was a moment's silence. That's done, it, Flint said. The circle is broken. The oath denied. Bad luck. So, basically, these friends got together, and they and it, they took an oath. Um, they should have known. See, Kitty Ara is Caraman and Raceland's half-sister. She's older. Probably older than 30, but not near being 40. Probably in her early 30s. So, her and uh, Tannis had a relationship. Um... She's always described as a swordswoman. She's uh, she's a kind of a she's kind of a a, a new archetype, especially back then. She, uh, she in in fantasy she was, you know, for lack of a better word, she was loose. She's a loose woman. She you know all that stuff, and that's not a bad thing. It's just saying that's who she is, she, and she owns it. And she you know she's tough. Um, short black hair, crooked smile. She's you know a beautiful woman. Every man wants Caesar wants her. No, uh, not not. She's she's muscular, not as opposed to being voluptuous. But she does have a nice body. Um, there actually are so pain- you'd smash. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, especially with the muscles. Like she's she's a swordswoman and she's good at it. Like she's a good a fighter as as pretty much any man. So. Um, she's also, though, an extremely opportunistic, backstabbing. She has no loyalty to anyone. I mean, but that's not her fault. Like they were raised. The story of the of the um, not the not the Majir family. Caraman and Raisel are Majir. That's their last name. Kittyar's last name is Uthmatar, and there she is the daughter of a Salamic knight. And her mother fled from Salamnia with her when she was just a, when she was a, not a baby, she was a kid. So she saw all this stuff and saw the destruction of the world and her father ruined all kinds of stuff. They had once been noble. So it was a very tough world she grew up in. And she, and her mother wasn't any help because she would go into like, I think it was epilepsy. They would call about the fit she got it, went into, quote unquote. So she, Kitty R was left largely to herself and she had to raise Caraman and Raceland. Because she took up, uh, her mother had taken up with a wood woodcutter or something like that, and that's Caraman Raceland's dad. So, but he was not a a good role model either. I think he might even have died early. I mean, he's barely mentioned. So, like I said, Carrie, Kitty Ara had all this responsibility at a very young age to take care of her two baby brothers, and then she had to earn a living. And 
it never said she prostituted herself, but I would not be surprised because at, at, at some point that's all the, you know, that's all the resource she's got. But then she learned how to fight and became a cell sword. You know, that's a term from uh, Game of Thrones, which we will do later, but that's going to be an entire year of shows. So one book is an entire year of shows. Anyway, um, then we get in chapter three. Um, here's the introduction of one of my favorite characters, uh, Stern Brightblade. Let's see. Can we edit out this silence? No. No, can't do it. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't have the capabilities. Okay. <laughs> It's just I'm, when I'm scanning and I, that you know I don't want to lose I people. Huh? I can. I can. Uh, oh, okay, but it, it it's not nearly as labor intensive as I can make it sound though. All right, okay, good. Um, this is the introduction of Sternbright Blade. He is a knight of Salamnia. Like I said, they are. I, you know what though? Between me, you, and the three people that are going to listen to this podcast, um, I never liked that name Salamnia. It always made me think of salami. I was just like, can you think of something? I know they were trying to be fantasy-like and come up with a with an epic name or something like that. I never cared for that name. I like what they are. They're just an order of knighthood. They would be basically like uh, the Knights Templar or something like that. So, as a matter of fact, that's they're patterned after that a lot, you know, um, especially with the corruption and all that stuff. Here is the. Introduction of one stern bright blade quote at the door stood a straight back figure dressed in full plate armor and chain mail the symbol of the order of the rose on the breastplate. This is a great description. A great many people in the in the end turned to stare scowling this man. The man was a slamnic knight and the knights of slamnia had fallen into ill repute up north rumors of their corruption spread even this far south. They are exactly like the knights templar have you know have basically just um Screwing people, strong arming people, you know. The few who recognized Sturm as a longtime former resident of Solace, Sturm had come to Solace in his youth, shrugged and turned back to their drinking. Those who did not continued to stare. In these days of peace, it was unusual enough to see a knight in full armor enter the inn, but it was still more unusual to see a knight in full armor dated back practically to the cataclysm. That's one thing about Sturm is that everybody sees him, you know, there's going to be styles of armor that are going to, you know, it's like fashion. He's wearing one that is hundreds of years old. So it's going to be, it's going to look very silly and antiquated to people who, from what I can gather, their their armor in this age is more utilitarian. Very plain steel without ornamentation. He's got stuff all over it. You know, it's like from the heydays of the Slamic Knights, you know, and um, he's, you know, so you have to understand that would attract a lot of attention and not all of it good. So um, here we go on with this quote. Sturm received the stairs as accolades do his rank. He's an extremely proud person and unflappable. That's one thing I like about him. He carefully smoothed his great thick mustaches, which being the age old symbol of the, of the Knights were as obsolete as his armor. That's one of the things that when the Slamic Knights went into, you know, when they were, when they had fallen out of favor and they had become this ill-favored group, a lot of them shaved. You know, they shaved those mustaches that are a symbol of them. Um, quote, he bore the trappings of the Slamic Knights with unquestioned pride, and he had the sword arm and the skill to defend that pride. Although pale, people in the inn stared no one after one look at the Knights' calm, cold eyes dared snicker or make a derogatory comment. Flint is a badass. Flint is a good fighter. I mean, not Flint, Sturm is a good fighter. And... Um, He's a big man. I'd say he's probably he's on. I'd say he's well. Caraman is six feet tall. I would say he might be of a height with Caraman, or maybe slightly. He'd probably be five ten or something like that. Um, 
you know, I'd say he probably goes about maybe 200 pounds, very lean, you know, uh, a, a fighting man, you know. And then with him, though, is the uh, we're going to have the people who are going to move this story along. Um, quote, the night held the door open for a tall man and woman heavily cloaked in furs. The woman must have spoken a, a word of thanks to Sturm for he bowed to her in a courtly, old-fashioned manner long dead in the modern world. That passage right there is, I think, a little bit too flowery. I mean, and they... They just Weiss and Hickman dispense with that kind of stuff by the second book. Like their their descriptions become not less ostentatious, but they become more. You know, when you're writing, sometimes man's really flowery stuff does not come across well, and that's one of those. I feel that's one of those passages. Um, Caraman says, "Quote: Look at that. The gallant knight helps the lady fair. I wonder who dragged up those two. And Tassoff says, "Quote: They're barbarians from the plains. That's the dress of the Quishu tribe." I don't know. That's got to be made up. You know, I don't know if they, the easiest thing to do I found when you, when you have fantasy is you find a culture that you're wanting to pattern something after and you find a word and use that word for that group. I think it sounds more authentic and it doesn't sound as silly to me. It sounds a little bit silly, but I still love it. Okay. Um, you know, and then the friends are just meeting, um, and they're, they hug each other, you know, it's, you know, just a regular meeting. And then, Turns out Sturm had gone north to find his father, and he uh, he the only thing he got from him is his one thing I did one one uh, thing that doesn't jive is that they said he got his armor from his father in his travels. Well, then they say later that he had more dents than the armor. Well, he it can't be both, so that's a slight mistake in the writing, you know. Um, but it's not nobody gives a shit, you know. It's it doesn't make the book any less uh, any less lovely. Um, they always talk about Flint's, I mean, Sturm's sword. The the word, the, the names get really mixed up here sometimes because um, he actually, I think he actually had another sword until this point, and then he saw a, uh, a splendid old, old-fashioned old two-handed sword, and that is the sword of the Brightblade family. And it is a sword that says it won't break until the man who wields it does. Um, I've always loved, this is one of my favorite things about Sturm is his sword and the fact that it comes in, it's really... Uh, an important artifact later on. So, um, you know, I, they've got, there's paintings of it, and it's a really, you know, it's something that would make Conan blush with it being so big and heavy. It's basically an edged club. That's what it is. It's not, it's not melt, even though he's a good fighter, I don't think it was a club meant for finesse. You know, it's uh, definitely a, a hacking sword. So, um, good description of the uh, Barbarians follows. Um, Quote, Tannis looked up at the t- as the two bar- barbarians walked past their table, heading for empty chairs that sat in the corners, in the shadows of a corner near the fire pit. The man was the tallest man Tannis had ever seen. Caraman, at six feet, would come only to, the, to this man's shoulder. How tall would that make him? Damn near seven, right? I mean, this is Riverwind, and Riverwind is an extremely tall man. Very thin, though. I mean, he's, uh, and it goes on, it says, but Caraman's chest was probably twice as big around his arms three times as big although the man was bundled with the furs barbarians tried to live in it was obvious that he was thin for his great height his face the dark skin had the pale cast as someone who has been ill or suffered greatly that's one of the things about riverwind that i never quite got over is that um he always seemed to be sick i don't know if it was my what i took away from it from his first introduction you know even in books a uh, uh, first impressions are last so um and i'm I think he was a good fighter. They never really get into it. I mean, they do 
And he does, but anyway. Um, and then his companion is this is a great description. Um, the, and, the, and it's from Tasselhoff's point of view. Um, and Tasselhoff is uh, apparently a, a great admirer of, of uh, human women. <laughs> I mean, it says, quote, the, Kember, the Kender stared in admiration. The woman's face was like the face of a marble statue, classic, pure cold. But it was her hair that captured the Kender's attention. Taz had never before seen such hair, especially on the plainsmen, who usually were dark-haired and dark-skinned. No jewelers spinning molten strands of silver and gold could have created an effect of this woman's silver-gold hair shining in the firelight. All right, now we're going to get into something that I was going to discuss earlier. There is a phenomenon, especially in um, fantasy, it is a trope called the mighty whitey. Um, it is basically Tarzan when they when 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 Tarzan became lord of the jungle. He you know a white man becomes greater than any person of color could ever be. It's ridiculous. It's bullshit. And I don't think they were trying to do that this with that because it is Dungeons and Dragons. They were just trying to make characters. But she comes from a dark skinned people. Why would she have silver gold hair? She just wouldn't. You know, her name's Gold Moon. I you know. It's very na- the 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 barbarians in this are extremely based on Native Americans, um, so I would always think, and I've been on discussion boards on Reddit and stuff. If they were going to do an adaptation, that they would do cast a Native American lady and just have her be dark headed, you know, just just say, well, that you know, and I don't think that uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Aitken would have any problem with it. I think they would be like, yeah, we you know we were this is you know. Completely fine with him But um, They do that uh, That's Dune It's been accused of that In Dune um, That uh, Paul Atreides Is a mighty whitey And stuff like that But the Fremen Were never Especially described As dark skin Or anything like that I don't think It's a bullshit trope I know it's a real trope And it is bullshit I'm saying as in People bitch about it And say well Why do people complain They complain Because it is A very Subtle way Of insinuating That white people Are better than other people And you should not do that, of course. And, um, you know, anyway, there is a man, a man telling a, an old man telling a story to a kid. And now this is where it really starts to uptick. Um, but a, a man is glaring, uh, as the guy tells the story, it's a story of the old gods. Um, and the, a guy sitting there watching it with a sour look on his face. His name's Hedrick, the High Theocrat. He's basically the leader of the the seeker gods around here, or the the people worship. There are no seeker gods; those gods aren't real. But um, and he's doesn't like that they're doing this. So um, I'm not going to read any of the uh, poems, pretty much, or the songs that they sing. And there's lots. I mean, you can see, you know, they just sing one of them. <laughs> No, I'm not going to sing them. I'm not going to say the words. This is she's Gold Moon. The old man asked Gold Moon, to, Gold Moon to sing a song, and what's crazy about that is the old man knows who her, her, her name has never met her. This old man is is I, he's a he. It will be revealed who he is later on. Um, and she starts singing this song, and uh, they start talking about the great god Paladine, and um, the old man says, "Quote." This kid says, a kid says, quote, Paladine, I've never heard of a god named Paladine. A soaring sound came from the high theocrat sitting at the nearby table. Tannis looked at Hedrick, whose face was flushed and scowling. The old man appeared not to notice. Quote, Paladine is one of the ancient gods' child. No one has worshipped him for a long time. 
and basically they get into why did the gods leave. This has been something that people have have argued about, you know, with this series is that the gods were the gods cruel for did they cause the cataclysm to happen or did they just take their protection away and it happened because people had turned away from them so much. I don't know. Um, I've always thought that when you're dealing with things like deities, that nothing is cut and dry because they have a whole universe or a whole, you know, plane of existence to run. So bad things are going to happen. One of my favorite memes is it has a dog and a little kid running from a little monster thing that says God right now, God is killing dogs and kids because he has to, you know what I mean? Like the universe is a, complex place and sometimes good people are going to get hurt you know I, I tend to think of that way that way um the gods of Kryn are you know there's a whole book you know about them but you know their description of them, who they are and stuff you know the big three being paladine is the god of good is you know he would be i suppose a zeus type though he looks nothing like zeus Tachesis, the queen of darkness and uh Gillian, the uh, god of neutrality. That's a big thing in Kryn. That we that is one of the the things that the, the themes they stick to. That's one of the things I admire about this this series of books so much. They stick to this good evil neutrality and the fact that there is this. Um, it's a pendulum. On one side you have good, on one side you have evil, and then neutrality swinging between them. And they and it swings back and forth. And so, at some point, evil will have the upper hand, and then and it has to be that way because that's how things are balanced and stayed balanced. You know, they're, that's a big, big theme that they stick to. Um, but as he uh, he's telling a story, uh, a story of Paladine, uh, hearing a prayer from Huma. Huma, the, uh, he was a Slamic knight who banished the dragons, of course. And um, then uh, the high theocrat says he, he's drunk and he stands up and says, blasphemy. And um, he makes a... Uh, he makes a grab for a uh, gold moon staff and she basically, she's polite about it, but she says, uh, you know, you know, then Riverwood stand, Riverwind stands up and pushes him into the fire. <laughs> it was an accident, you know, cause the guy's drunk. Um, and then he fell head first into the fire. Um, quote, there's a whoosh and a flare of light, then a sickening smell of burning flesh. The theocrats screamed, tore through the stunned silence as the crazed man leaped to his feet and started whirling around in a frenzy. He had become a living torch. Um, I always love this, the fact that only Tasselhoff, quote, only Tasselhoff had wits enough to turn, run around, run forward, anxious to try and help the man. Um, the, he grabs Goldmoon's staff, Tasselhoff does, um, and he swings at the guy with all his strength and hit, and quote, he swung it using all his strength and hit the, the theocrat squarely, squarely in the chest. The man fell to the ground. There was a gasp from the crowd. Tesshoff himself stood, open mouth, as the staff clutched in his hand, at the staff clutched in his hand, staring down at the amazing sight at his feet. The flames had died instantly. The man's robes were whole, undamaged. His skin was pink and healthy. He sat up, a look of fear and awe on his face. He stared at his hands and his robes. There was not a mark on his skin. There was not the smallest cinder smoking on his robes. The the staff has healed him. There is has been no healing since the gods left. Uh, that's another thing is that this world, all these diseases and stuff ran riot because the, these clerics, you know, clerics in Dungeons and Dragons are they're priests, they're people of God. They, you know, they use prayers as opposed to magic users. I honestly don't see the difference between a magic user and a cleric, other than the fact that a cleric prays to a god to do their magic so they could heal and help all these people so that's not been seen since the cataclysm and now they have it so that's a miracle you know in this place that is 
out of miracles. So um, the theocrat says uh, he's going to arrest Goldmoon and calls the guards. Um, here's the craziest thing, though. Um, the guy, the high theocrat says, quote, foul witch, you've cured me with evil. Even as I burn to purify my flesh, you will burn to purify your soul. Without the seeker reached out and before anyone could stop him, plunged his hand back into the flames. He gagged with the pain, but did not cry out. Then clenching his scarred and blackened hand, he turned and staggered off through the murmuring crowd. A wild look of satisfaction on his pain, twisted face. That's about covers it, doesn't it? When it comes to people and things they believe and want to torture themselves for you know, to appease some kind of God. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, Tika says, then hustles him out. Um, he says, you guys got to get out of here. They're calling the guards. So then they run. Um, and uh, that's pretty much it for chapter three. And uh, the this is the good introduction of the main characters of Dragonlance, the Dragonlance Chronicle series. Um, it's... Uh, it's a really good introduction. Like I said, some of the stuff is amateurish because they were amateurs, but they have some really good warm, you know, parts of this book. And it's, it's very good. Um, then, uh, they go to Tika's house to get some supplies up and, you know, to get away. Um, and they're trying to figure out the blue crystal staff and, um, getting to know each other as people. I like there's some interplay between the characters because they don't trust each other. They don't know each other yet, other than the companions who've known each other for years. Um, there's some good back and forth. Um, quote, Raceland sat down on the hearth, rubbing his thin hands in the warmth of the small fire. This is Antika's house. His golden eyes seemed brighter than the flames as he stared intently at the blue crystal staff resting across the woman's lap. What do you think, asked Tannis. If she's a charlatan, she's a good one, Raceland commented thoughtfully. And then that incenses Riverwind, who says, quote, Worm, you dared to call the chieftain's daughter charlatan. The tall barbarian stepped towards Raceland, his dark brows contracted in a vicious scowl. Carol made a low, rumbling sound in his throat and moved from the window to stand behind his brother. You know, Raceland is a magic user. Nobody trusts magic users anyway. And the fact that he's kind of a prick, you know, makes him, you know. So there's, I like that interplay, the fact that not everybody's getting along quite yet, you know. And um, this is this is a bond that has to be built over time and you know, helping each other and all that stuff. Um, Raceland tries to grab the staff, though. Um, quote, the mage stretched out his long, bony arm, his thin hands. This is after asking for permission. His thin hand grasping for it eagerly. As Raceland touched the staff, however, there was a bright flash of blue light and a, and a crackling sound. The mage jerked his hand back, crying out in pain and shock. Caraman jumped forward, but his brother stopped him. Um, it's the staff recognizes that he's not a good person that he's a person with evil in his heart so even though he's got good in his heart too but anyway i mean like i said balance and you know another another great thing in any book or anything moral ambiguity raceland has a shit ton of moral ambiguity he is a great character uh, we'll get into how awesome he is later um right now see another thing about this too is that this is early so these characters like anything you know, the best description I, I can think of is that in a sitcom, you start out and everybody's character is very, very rough. You don't know who they are yet. They haven't had the interplay. They're trying to, even the writer's trying to figure out who they've got. They've got a general idea, a sketch. These characters are sketches right now, and they haven't really come into their own. They're just tropes at the point. You have the courtly knight, the big warrior, his magic user brother, barbarians, half elves, dwarves, you know, all that stuff. Um, they're 
a bit tropey to begin with, but they all but there's a lot of early on there's a lot of good characterizations there. It's it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, so Grayson says, "Quote: Only those of simple goodness, pure in heart, and his sarcasm was biting may touch the staff. It's truly a sacred staff of healing, blessed by some god. It is not magic. No magic objects that I have heard of have healing powers. Which I don't know if that's so. That would seem kind of silly, you know. Magic. Why wouldn't it heal someone? Anyway, um." <sighs> There are some uh, goblins that come to look for him. Uh, Caraman doesn't know his own strength, picks him up, slams our heads together and kills him. He didn't mean to do it. Um, I, I kind of like him that way because he doesn't know his own strength. Um, then they uh, they leave town after getting chased out. You know, the, the uh, goblins are chasing him out of town. It's basically a chase now. Um, we're in Chapter 5, and... Uh, Farewell to Flint, arrows fly, message in the stars. This is where we really start to get the feel of what's going on, you know, in the world. It's it's a very good chapter. Um, they're trying to figure out where to go. Um, they're all they're all tired, you know, river wind and cold, especially because they've traveled a great distance. Um, so they decide to go to the lake, Crystal Mirror Lake, and uh, there's a really funny part here. Um, <laughs> Flint will not get in boats and I like the fact that they do this they allude to an earlier incident and um, I'm trying to get I'm trying to get it is Caraman's fault um, he basically says well I didn't mean to I wasn't shaking the boat that hard basically knocked Flint into the water Flint almost drowned and uh, dwarves are nothing but a little rock of muscle so of course they're not very good swimmers so um, they're trying to See if they're going to take a boat. Um, everybody says, "Don't tell Flint because he won't come." So, um, and he's obstinate. <laughs> Here we go. Um, quote: "We're going by boat." Tannis moved forward. Nope, Flint growled, "I'm not getting any boat." <laughs> that accident happened ten years ago. Tannis had exasperated. Look, I'll make Caraman sit still. <laughs> so, Caraman, that he's a big old guy. Knocked the you know, made the boat rock and knocked him over. Um, so they uh, take the boat to um, over to this cave uh, where they're going to figure out what they're going to do. But basically, now they're just on the run. They don't know what they're doing. They know they've got this staff. They, you know, uh, you have a bunch of people who are wanting to go to different places. Sturm wants to take it to Salamnia. Tannis thinks they should go to Qualanesi, which is actually probably the best choice because the elves, even at this point, their their land is peaceful. But that's because they basically kill anybody who comes comes into their land, like. Um, the elves in this that always struck me is that the elves in Lord of the Rings are very friendly, you know, and everybody's welcome. The elves in this are extremely xenophobic and racist. They don't want anybody. You know, you have two different big elven kingdoms, the Qualanesti, who are what would you consider what they would call sun elves. This is a big Dungeons and Dragons thing. I mean, yeah, it's even even I think it's like nerdy. Um, they're usually blonde headed and they are people of the sun. They, you know, their city is, you know, based around love from the sun. Then you have the Sylvanesti, which would be considered moon elves. And they're more about darkness and they're not evil though. They're, they're just dark. They're dark haired, you know, whatever. There's a lot of bitterness between the two kingdoms because Qualanesti split off from Sylvanesti earlier in their history. So 
Quail Nesty will take in humans on occasion. They will trade with them. They do not like them, usually. Um, but there's exceptions to every role, you know. Um, Sylvanesti, if you step in Sylvanesti and you're a human, you're dead. They will kill you. If you're a dwarf and step into Sylvanesti, you're dead. Um, Kinder, I don't think they kill them because they're harmless, but they definitely escort them off the grounds. Like, you're getting out of here. So, um, and then they relieve them or whatever they've stolen while they've been in Sylvanesti. Um, we get into this right now with they're starting to. Uh, Tell you about the relationship between Goldmoon and Riverwind. Goldmoon is apparently she's the chieftain's daughter, which is like a uh, religious slash royal position, you know, over him. And Riverwind was come from a common family and stuff like that. Um, it creates a lot of tension between them because he's her subject and her beloved, even though they haven't had sex. That's one. Of the, that's one of the things that they get into later. And I'm I was surprised. I was like, you know. You know, you're being celibate. This is a fantasy world. You know, I don't know. It, was, it just seemed kind of strange. But anyway, um, they decide to take the boat, and Flint says he's not going. And and they decide to, and they for a minute you think not Flint's not coming. Like they all get in the boat and they're and they're taking off, and then suddenly Flint um, quote hold it. It was Flint running down from the trees, a vague moving shape of blackness against the moonlit shore. Hang on, I'm coming. So he runs. He gets in the water. And he immediately sinks because he's a dwarf. So Caraman's reaching down, trying to grab him, and hauls him up, and throws him in the throws him in the boat. And they get over, and they uh, we start to see a little bit of uh, the first bit of Raceland's magic. There was a something that happened earlier that I didn't read. Uh, he did this thing where he could jump off of a he jumped off one of the uh, platforms around one of the Valwood trees and said this word, and he floated down. So he demonstrates his magic there. Then he's he does a spell where he puts these uh, goblins to sleep. Apparently, it's a really powerful spell because everybody's in awe of it, you know, and especially him being so young. Um, I never thought it seemed like that powerful a spell to me. Like you put him to sleep, couldn't you conjure up a dragon something to kill him? I don't know. It, just, it didn't. It just didn't seem very impressive to me. But apparently, it's really difficult. Um, but that always takes takes it out of him. So he has to rest. And because his his uh, health is so broken, that's that's one of the things about Raceland is that he is extremely powerful, but his body is so broken that every time he has a spell, he has to rest. And it, you know, it really goes into that later on. Um, okay, this is where we get into um, Raceland actually sees something that is one of the cornerstones of the whole thing: um, the constellations, the constellations in the sky. Um, Quote, what? Tannis truly was startled by the power of the mage's metallic gold skin and the feverish luster of strange eyes. What about the constellations? Gone, rasped Raceland and laughs into a fit of coughing. Um, the constellation known as the Queen of Darkness and the one called Valiant Warrior, both gone. She has come to Kryn, Tannis, and he has come to fight her. All the evil rumors we have heard are true. War, death, destruction. So that's what we're getting into. These two gods are now directly involved and, in a sense, walking the walking this planet getting ready to influence a lot of things. So basically you can say the shit's going to hit the fan. It's going to be this giant war. Um, and trust me, it does not, it is, it is extremely like, it's a brutal war. So, um, the next chapter, they're, uh, trying to discuss what they're going to do. Um, they're all arguing. Um, one of my favorite parts of this chapter, um, is that you get to see what's in, uh, Tasselhoff's 
pouches. Some of the stuff he's carrying through. Um, quote, Tannis glanced around at the others. Tassoff was sitting near the fire, soaring through his acquired objects. He sat cross-legged, the treasures on the cave in the floor in front of him. Tannis could make out glittering rings, a few unusual coins, a feather from the goat sucker bird, pieces of twine, a bead necklace, a soap doll, and a whistle. One of the rings looked familiar. It was a ring of elven make given Tannis a long time ago by someone he kept on the border of his mind. It was a finely carved, delicate ring of golden clinging ivy leaves. Um, and here you get one of the t- Kinder excuses. Uh, Tannis crept over to the Kinder, walking softly to keep from waking the others. Taz, he tapped the Kinder on the shoulder and pointed, My ring. Is it? asked Tassoff, Wide eyed innocence. Is this yours? I'm glad I found it. You must have dropped it at the end. So <laughs> he just stole it from him. And, you know. But he he honestly believes that like like I said the kinder not that's one of the things that makes him so endearing they do not steal for personal gain he's just a bit of a rascal yeah and he's and he's funny and he's the best description that is in one of the Dragonlance source books these books you used to buy tell you about the world and stuff like that basically a money grab but a good one so um, it says that given the option of a big diamond worth. You know, hundreds of thousands of pieces of gold, or a gr- glittering piece of purple glass. Nine, you know, nine tenths of Kinder will take the glass, and they they will be aware of how much the diamond is worth. But it's uninteresting. You know, they don't. The wealth is not a thing to them because that ties them down. So the other the other thing was, but uh, the other ten percent would take both, but get rid of the diamond first because it's you know it's just not as interesting. So. Um, and then he asked Tannis for a, uh, Taz for a map because Kenders always have maps. Tassahoff is actually a, it's one of his thing favorite things is maps. They go into that, and he has all these maps. Um, you know, it's really another one of uh, one of the things not peculiar to him, but you know, it's a peculiar thing that you know to that race and him being of that race. He's even more. Fixated on them than others are So um, They're trying to figure out Where they're going to go You know Just disagreeing And uh, They decide to One one of my favorite parts Of this chapter though Is uh, A description from Sturm's point of view Um, He says something about Tannis That is one of the uh, One of the reasons They listen to Tannis Um it's it's a beautiful thing, you know, for a friend to think about another friend without even telling him. You know, at first it seems insulting, but it's not. Um, quote, the knight looked at Tannis's, Tannis's calm, thoughtful face, the almond-shaped eyes that held the wisdom of his many years of wandering. You have to understand that Tannis, while he's looks to be of an age with Flint, with uh, Sturm, is much older because he's he's part elf. The knight had often tried to resolve within himself why he accepted Tannis's leadership. He was nothing more than a bastard half-elf after all. That's the insulting part. He did not come of noble blood. He wore no armor, carried no shield with a proud emblem. Yet Sturm followed him and loved and respected him as much as he respected no other living man. Um, the code that had held true for 700 years, uh, but Sturm's secret fear that was someday in the final battle, the code would have no answers. He knew that if that day came, Tannis would be in his Tannis would be at his side, holding the crumbled world together. For while Sturm followed the code, Tannis lived it. And the knight's code is Estelaris Oath Mislos. Well, I'm I'm assuming that's Latin. You know, that's a that's a big thing in a lot of fantasy is they'll throw Latin in there because it sounds fantasy esque. You know, it's a dead language. Um, or might even be made up. I don't know, but it still sounds good. Um. 
trying to decide what to do with the staff. Um, then they're on the road to, uh, and here's one of the, uh, they introduce another villain here in a second. They're on the road and they're trying to decide, you know, where to go. And they're just walking, but they know they have to stay off the road. So these, uh, and then we get into Riverwind story in this chapter. This is chapter seven. Um, and it really gets into Riverwind, what happened with him. Um, he's the one who actually got the staff and he wanted gold moon's hand in marriage. Well, but his family followed the old gods. Like they had never abandoned faith of the old gods. So Goldmoon's father, no, thinking that he's not a suitable match for his daughter, sent him on a mission to find proof of these old gods. Um, he thinking it was an impossible task. He returned eventually after it was years he was gone, and uh, he was basically half dead. And then he they were going to stone him to death for blasphemy. Then she stood, um, Goldmoon ran to him while they were being, and she was started to get hit by stones too. And then the, the staff flared and then they were on the road outside of solace. So, you know, magic stuff, you know, just, uh, <laughs> fantasy exposition, I guess, or fantasy, uh, what do you call that? Uh, do sex machina, you know, machinery of the gods just to hurry things along. Um, it was, uh, you know, it's a good character. It's, you know, but they, he doesn't remember anything about the place he went to find this stuff. He remembers death on black wings. That's what he always says. Death on black wings. Uh, he says, uh, quote, he raged in his fever about a dark place, a broken city where death had black wings. And then when, when he was nearly wild with fever and terror and the servants had tied his arms to the bed, he remembered a woman, a woman dressed in blue light. She came to him in the dark place. He said, and healed him and gave him the staff. When he remembered her, he grew calmer and his fever broke. Um, you know, that's definitely a, a lot of uh, pre- foreshadowing. Um, I like the fact, though, that Riverwind reveals a little bit of his, uh, I guess you would call it racism here. And he looks to Tennis and he says, quote, Tennis Half-Elven, that is your name. Among humans, that is what I'm called. My Elvish name is long and difficult for humans to produce, pronounce. Uh, Riverwind frowned. Why is it, he asked, are you called Half-Elf and not Half-Man? The question struck Tannis like a blow across the face. He could almost envision himself sprawling in the dirt and had to force himself to stop and swallow an angry retort. He knew Riverwind was asking this question for a reason and not meant a minute an insult. This was a test, Tannis realized. He chose his words carefully. According to humans, half an elf is but part of a whole being. Half a man is a cripple. Um, uh, and uh, Riverwind respected that. Uh, so they're discussing... Can we pause for a second? Yes. We're live. Okay. Um... This is uh, what I was saying is that uh, they're now discussing where they're going um, and they're being pursued, of course. And um, but then they're on this road and then uh, they send Taz Tassahoff out as a scout. He comes running back and he says, quote, clerics, he gasped, a party of clerics eight. Sturm sniffed. I thought it was a battalion of goblin guards at least. I believe we can handle a party of clerics. I don't know, Tassahoff said dubiously. I've seen clerics from every part of, part of Cran. I've never seen any like these. Um, and they and here's the most thing that makes them all scared. And Tannis, they gave me an eerie feeling. And <laughs> I like the, the reaction between Tannis and Sturm because they're just like, he's not afraid of anything, you know, and that gives him an eerie feeling that's not good, you know. Um, 
quote, the knight raised his eyebrows. Both of them knew the Kenders did not feel the emotion of fear, yet were extremely sensitive to other creatures' natures. Um, Tannis couldn't remember the, when the sight of any being on Crin had ever give Taz an eerie feeling, and he'd been with the, with the Kinder in some tight spots. So these clerics are, they're like hooded, cloaked, um, and they're I just approach them, and Sturm decides to approach them to see, you know, what's going on. Um, the description of them uh, is from Tannis's point of view. Quote, Tannis looked out to the road. Like Taz, he had never seen anything compared to these clerics in his hundreds of year, in his hundred years of life on Crin. Tannis is a hundred years old. The, they were tall, about six feet in height. Long robes shrouded their bodies. Hooded cloaks covered, their, covered the robes. Even their feet and hands were wrapped in cloth like bandages covering leprous wounds. As they neared Sturm, they glanced around warily. One of them stared straight into the bush where the camp companions were hiding. They could see only glittering dark eyes through a swath of cloth. Um... They're basically trying to figure out who these guys are, and you know, I don't actually. In in hindsight, reading this again, I don't know why they did that. I mean, I don't. It doesn't really make any sense if they're trying to remain hidden, but I think they might be trying to figure out where they're going, or you know. Anyway, um, one of the clerics says that one of the, his party is sick, so then Goldmoon stands up um, and wants to heal him because she's a nice person. Um, and then they ask, but they ask for a blue crystal staff. That's what they're looking for. So they all, everybody knows something's up now. Um, quote, we seek a staff, the cleric answered readily, a blue crystal staff. We heard that it had been sighted in solace. Do you know aught of it? That's very fantasy-esque. Aught. Do you know anything about it? Um, yes, Sturm answered. I've heard of such a staff in solace. Heard of the armies to the north from the same companions. Um, am I to believe these stories or not? Um, and the cleric says, it is a sacred staff of healing. One of our brothers is sorely ill. He will die without the blessed touch of this holy relic. So then, um, Gold Moon stands up, and uh, then everybody comes out behind them. Basically, they've all decided to just give up the pretense of hiding. Um, and it says, quote, I can help you. Gold Moon's clear voice rang out with a pure silver barrel. The chieftain's daughter saw a stern shock face. She understood Tannis's warning. Um, she was just, she's a nice person, just trying to help him. Um, she says, quote, I'm the bearer of the blue crystal staff, but we did not steal it. The staff was given to us. Um so you say, the cleric said in a soft, searing, sneering voice. Um, and they're just discussing the staff now. Uh, she basically said it was carried out of a place of great evil. Um, and she's, she said, I will not relinquish it until I figured, until I figured out that you really, that it really belongs to you. Because they were claiming it's theirs. Um, and then uh, they, Goldmoon says she wants to take, be taken to the man um, to heal him. And this is where we get... What these what is introduced now is called, called draconians. Now these these are a complex. They're they're definitely a Dragonlance creation. It's a dragon man. It's basically it's a dragon in a man's body. Um, the description of him is that's what these guys were. They were wrapped up because they can't be seen to be what they are because they're of race that's not been on Crin before. Quote, Tannis followed the astonished dwarf's gaze and the half-elf recoiled in horror. It wasn't a man. Leathery wings sprang from its back. It had the scaly flesh of a reptile. Its large hands and feet were clawed, but it walked up upright in the manner of men. The creature wore sophisticated armor that allowed it to use, allowed the use of its wings. It was the creature's face, however, that made him shudder. It was not the living face of any living being he'd ever seen before, either on Crin or in his darkest nightmares. The creature had the face of a man, but it was as if some malevolent being had twisted into that of a reptile. It's pretty horrifying description um when you really think about it i mean i like the fact that they even though they live in a fantastic world 
still like shit like this would still freak him out. You know, I like that because in some of the other books I'm going to discuss, provided there will be more of these shows, um, magic and all these strange things, when, when you throw them out there enough to become commonplace, and there's a place for that. Like Forgotten Realms, we'll discuss a lot. There's a lot of that in there. Like these, they live in a world where magic is as common as anything, and strange creatures are as common as anything. So nothing really shocks anyone. I don't like that. That's not anything that. Um, it's not that I don't like those books. There's some great books in those places, but um, it's like the it's the thing they did for for uh, Game of Thrones. George R. R. Martin was of the opinion that I am. If you have too much magic in something, it cheapens it. And then it makes, you know, everything just seems kind of silly. You know, Lord of the Rings had very little magic too, oddly enough. I mean, they had, you know, a lot of it was distant, you know, it was magic of things or, you know, people just couldn't reach out and do things. You know, Gandalf could do some things with his staff and stuff like that, but he never really did like magic magic. You know, he just didn't do it. Um, I like it better that way. Um, but like I said, this, you know, this world is kind of in between that. There are, you know, strange creatures and stuff in this world, but they're not they're not very commonplace. So um, they get into a fight with these guys and um, it's a pretty good dust up. They don't do very well, though. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sturm gets knocked in the head, injured. Um, you know, they're just uh, Tannis kills one of them. And turns out when you kill a draconian, it turns into stone. But here's the here's the here's the the strange thing about there are different draconians for different. Okay. <laughs> this is going to require some explanation. Draconians are derived from good dragon eggs that, that were stolen. And they then they corrupt them and turn them into draconians. So for every, the good dragons, like the evil dragons have different colors. You have gold, silver, the good dragons are metallic. The, the evil dragons are chromatic. Like for, for for instance, you know, the uh, evil dragons would be red, black, blue, stuff, stuff like that. The good dragons are gold, silver, copper, you know, all that. So they have corrupted the good dragons' eggs that they've stolen, which turns into a big thing later on. This is causes a, you know, of course, a, a very powerful response from their parents, you know. So, but they turn them into these draconians. Um, these are what's known as Baz, B-A-Z, B-A-A-Z. I think these were made from uh, bronze dragons who are the least powerful dragons. So when they die, they turn into, they're big and they're strong, but they're not the toughest ones. They turn into stone when they die. Some dragons turn into pools of acid. The silver ones do, the Sivax. They're, they're powerful. Like they're big and they're powerful warriors. The worst ones are the Arax, which are, Gold dragons. There's only a few gold dragons because they're they're like almost gods, godlike themselves. So th the draconians made from them are crazy powerful. There's only a couple of them, and when they die, they just go into a frenzy of magic and start killing everybody around them. So it's really kind of a cool concept. I mean, it was. Um, I think draconians are a good their 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 history in this world. Uh, you feel kind of bad for them after a while because they didn't choose to be this, and they're. They come from a, a race of good You know they were just corrupted into something that's bad As a matter of fact it's oddly like uh, Orcs in uh, Lord of the Rings Orcs in Lord of the Rings are elves who have been corrupted And turned into what they are it's not their fault So um, Anyway they go through this fight And um, 
they win, of course, but it wasn't good. The Sturm is extremely injured, and uh, then they f- flee into the forest. And then we have something, you know, that happened to Huma that, that, that was in the tail. It's called the White Stag. That's chapter nine. And Sturm, who's had a horrible head wound, uh, now sees this White Stag, and he starts pursuing it through the forest. I mean, that's basically the extent of it. And they go to, into a place called Darken Wood, which is... Uh, that's the next chapter. And Darkenwood is this place of supposed evil. But I think the best description is it it's like the cave in in Star Wars. It's what evil you bring in with you. You know, like if you are seeking to harm somebody, you will be harmed. Stuff like that. Um Raceland didn't want to go in because he said, I don't want to go in there. You know, it's you know, it's a it's a dangerous place and all that stuff. And they're all like, Well, you know, it looks fine to me, so they're going in there anyway, despite his his uh Best efforts to keep him from going. Um, then all of a sudden, uh, out of nowhere, these, uh, quote, an army of warriors surrounded them. That alone would have been enough to chill anyone's blood, but the companions could have dealt with that. But they couldn't handle was the horror that over, overwhelmed and numbed their senses. Um, each one recalled Karaman's flippant comment, I'll fight the living any day of the week, but not the dead. These warriors were dead. Nothing more than fleeting, fragile white outline their bodies. It was as if human warmth that had been theirs while they lingered on horribly after death. The flesh had rotted away, leaving behind the body's image as remembered by the soul. Soul apparently remembered other things, too. Each warrior was dressed in ancient, remembered armor. Each warrior carried remembered weapons that could inflict well-remembered death. This is kind of, you know. But the undead needed no weapons. They could kill from fear alone by the touch of their, their grave-cold hands. Um... These are basically the guardians of this forest. They failed in a task, so now they've been set to do this task for all of time until they have... It's... Okay. There are things that Dragonlance, like any, like All Fantasy did, that took from heavily, borrowed heavily from Tolkien. Um, the very genre itself it was pretty much born with Tolkien. And he had concepts like this peppered throughout his books. These characters right here, these uh, spectral minions are called, are are in Return of the King. Like, they were one of the tipping points that helped them win that last battle against Sauron and all that stuff. We all remember, you know, anybody seen Lord of the Rings remembers that, you know, Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas had to go in the forest and bring them out, and, you know, it was, it was always one of my favorite parts of the book, but in the movie, I felt it was kind of, I don't know. I didn't quite like it, but in the again in the book it was one of the best parts. But um, anyway, that's what we've got here. Um, Raceland offers to speak to them because he's powerful enough to. Uh, he says, "Quote: I'm going to cast a spell that will enable us to communicate with them. I will perceive their thoughts. They will speak through me." Um, I like this description. Uh, quote. As Raceland spoke, the crowd of warriors parted, and a figure more awesome and terrifying than the rest appeared. The specter was taller than the rest and wore a shimmering crown. His pallid armor was richly decorated with dark jewels. His face showed the most terrible grief and anguish. He advanced upon Raceland. Um, then he grabs Raceland, and they're standing there, you know, like hand in hand, basically. Um, Karim, Raceland cried out because it's like touching a, a, I guess a ghost is colder than anything. Um, let's see. And then he says, of course, like any... <laughs> like any fantasy thing, who are you to trespass in this? You know what I mean? It's, it's tropes, of course, but it's it's good tropes. Um, here's my favorite parts, though. Um, quote, 
Tannis tried to answer, but his throat had died, dried up completely. This is after he asked what they're doing there. Coming next to him, couldn't even lift his head. Then Tannis felt movement at his side. The kinder, cursing himself, he reached out for grab for Tassel off, but it was too late. The small figure, top knot dancing, ran out to the line of Raceland staff and stood before the specter. Tasselhoff bowed respectfully. I'm Tasselhoff Burford, he said. My friends, he waved a small hand in the group, called me Taz. Who are you? <laughs> he just basically tried to shake a ghost's hand because he was just interested in it. Um, basically, they were, this was part of the cataclysm when they were put in this place, and now they failed in their task. Again, it's Tolkien. It's heavily Tolkien. Um, but they are aware of the Blue Crystal Staff, so then they get taken to uh, the Forest Master. It's a unicorn, of course, as, you know, you can't, you can't have a fantasy without unicorns, and they're usually one of the more powerful members of the bestiary. So, um, they basically, they are they get healed, they get, get to eat, and then they're discussing where they're going to go. Um, but they, they had something that really, something that was really part of those you know, it was a lot of foreshadowing, and I knew that they knew what they were going to do beforehand, and it was just something that shocked everybody, though, when it happened. Um, let's see. The Forest Master says, uh, well, Caraman wants to eat something, and it's a deer, and she said, and he's like, well, that's probably a friend of yours, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she says, the deer fulfills his purpose in life by providing sustenance for the hunter, be a wolf or man. We did not mourn the loss of those who die fulfilling their destinies. It seemed to Tannis that the four master's dark eyes went to stern as she spoke, and there was a deep sadness in them that filled the half-elf's heart with cold fear. But when he turned back to the forest master, he saw the magnificent animal smiling once more. My imagination, he thought. You know, I don't know if this is if I should do spoilers or not. I mean, but it's something that happens later on, and it does concern Sturm. So, you know, that was very early on they were doing that. Um, she basically tells them um, that you should they have to go to a place. Um, they wanted to go to Qualano, to Qualanesti, and the Force Master tells them they can't go there. They have their own problems. Um, but she tells them where to go to find answers to their questions. She says they have two days to get to a city called Zaxaroth. It's this old city. It was before the Cataclysm. Is uh, seaside city it was really beautiful, um, and it got cast down the side of a mountain, basically. So this is where they're going, um, and this is where we get into, you know. We had to go through, in my opinion, this is one of the weakest parts of the book because they had to go through a lot of stuff here. The, you know, um, okay. This is, though, one of the worst parts of the book, as in it's good, but it's, uh, one of the, some of the best writing. And it is, they, they're, they have to go, go through Quishu, which is Goldman and Riverwind's own old place. And, um, it's one of the most, Touching and disturb, not disturbing because it's not you know disturbing is not a whole other thing. It's more of a more, uh, it's really sad. So they find their the 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 village where they used to live, and I'm going to read um, bits and pieces of it or most of it. Um, Quote: Twilight, the pale sunset, shafts of yellow and tan streaked the western sky, then faded into dreary night. The companions sat huddled around a fire that offered no warmth, for there existed no flame on Kryn that would drive the chill from their souls. They did not speak to each other, but each sat staring into the fire, trying to make some sense of what they had seen, trying to make sense of the senseless. That's a beautiful passage. That's good writing. Um, and it continues. Quote, Tennis had lived through much that was horrible in his life, but the ravaged town of Quishu would always stand out in his mind as a symbol of the horrors of war. Um, let's see. The buildings were melted. Um, but what fire on there on Kryn that could melt rock? Um, 
this is all told from, I think it's all told from Tannis's point of view. Um, one of the saddest things is, uh, quote, he remember Goldmoon standing in the center of her father's ruined house trying to put together back the pieces of a broken vase. That is fucking hard. That is hard. But the worst part is this. He remembered a dog, the only living thing they found in the entire village, curled around the body of a dead child. Caraman stopped to pet the small dog. The animal cringed and licked the big man's hand and then licked the child's cold face, looking up at the warrior, hopefully expecting this human to make everything all right, to make his little playmate run and laugh again. He remembered Caraman stroking the dog's soft fur with his huge hands. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's also crushing. You know, just that juxtaposition of... um I always imagine Caramon was crying when that was him because he's so soft-hearted. Um, and then here's the worst part. Um, quote, he remembered the sorrow-faced line of the, of the dwarf who had seen so much tragedy in his long lifetime as he stood in the center of a ruined village, patting Tasselhoff gently on the back after finally Kendra sobbing in a corner. I mean, this is just, this is terrible. You know, they, the, the, the dragon armies basically have, have destroyed their entire village and killed everyone. And the ones who lived fled. So I always thought that was I, – I wanted to get to this part, and I think that this is where we might close today. Um, this part was so well-written that it was the true flash of genius that's coming in the rest of this series. Like, it's ironic that the wor- one of the worst things that happens in the book is some of the best writing that they have. But I found with, with Weiss and Hickman, some of their best things are when they're really describing tragedy. So, you know, um, that's where I want to leave today and uh, – just remember the, you know, quote, he remember Goldmoon's frantic search for survivors. She called through the black and rubble, screaming out names, listening for faint answers to her calls until she was hoarse, and Riverrun finally convinced her it was hopeless. If there were any survivors, they had long since fled. Um, and then it says, and so they left Quishu, traveled far into the night, none of them wanting to stop, each wanting to push his body to the point of exhaustion, exhaustion so that when they finally slept, there would be no evil dreams, but the dreams came anyway. That's beautiful. So that's cold. Yeah, it's that was rough. I think that's a good place to start. We'll pick it back up. So thanks, guys, for enjoy for enjoying uh, joining me for this. I know it was rough, and hopefully the next ones will be better. Um, it's just a new thing, and I'm not used to the not having three other people to bounce stuff off of and cutting comments. So <laughs> we'll uh, we'll pick it up next time. Thanks for joining me.